Hey, uh, big, big celebration going on uh, today. So how would you like it if you got really, 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 really sick and you went to the hospital? You got a little bit better and you came out of the hospital. Then you got sick and went back to the hospital. Then you couldn't be home. But then every time you tried to get to church, you got sick for months and months and months. And then one day on the first Sunday in August, you got up and made it to church. Sarah Howell is back with us today. She's back there. We just want to say... We're gonna, I might be in trouble doing it. Yeah. So uh, that's risky, isn't it? Because some people really don't like attention. And, uh, but I asked Sarah one day, I was going up to the hospital, and I thought, I wonder if she needs a, a sunny word of encouragement or a listening ear. And I thought, because some people don't want a sunny word of encouragement when they're sick. Right? They just want you to come and shut up and, you know. And then other people, they, that's what they need. So I said, Sarah, I got to a room, and I said, do you... Do you need a sunny word of encouragement today, or you need a listening ear? And she immediately said, oh, a sunny word of encouragement. <laughs> so she's a sunny word of encouragement kind of person. <laughs> and so, Sarah, we're so glad you could make it to, back to your Bethel. We have that phrase, don't we, back to Bethel. And so we, you're back. So, so glad to, that all of you are here. Now, last week, you remember me telling a little story about a kayak. Said I had a bunch of young guys that were with me at a, at a, uh, at a, a college retreat. And I said, let's get in the kayaks. Remember this? And then they would say, where are we going? And I wouldn't tell them where we were going. And then I would take them somewhere and then teach them. And then we, I didn't tell you the whole story. I, I also said, get in the van. And, and we would get in the van and they would say, where are we going? And I wouldn't tell them. And we'd go to a beautiful waterfall and hike around the lake. And then I would teach them again. And anyway, then maybe you remember that I mentioned that one of the young men that was on that particular retreat lived in the western provinces of Canada, and he invited, he put together a thing called the Sinai Summit, he called it, and he invited me out there and paid me to fly all the way out there and took me to all these amazing places in these most beautiful and amazing places in the Canadian Rockies, and, and he is a very, very good photographer, musician, and a friend, and he his name is Jared Moser, and he's in our service today. So, Jared, you got to stand up and let everybody say hi to you. And that's Jared. Jared, thank you for, thank you for coming all the way from Nova Scotia to, to Bethel. He was on a cross-two-country tour with his family, which I've been following on the internet. He's a father of three now, and, and, and he, he came way out of his way to be here with us today. Jared, I'm so happy to see you, and I will never forget. I told you I would never forget. That was 10 years ago. That thank you so much for arranging one of the most beautiful speaking, the most beautiful speaking engagement I have ever had in my entire life. Now, let me tell you a story about something that happened. I was teaching, I think it was maybe at your house, the first uh, session, and we were talking about evidences of God's love. And he was engaged to, to be married, and, and we all agreed to different things that we took as evidence that God loves us, you know, beyond the obvious one, which is written in the Word that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. You can always look there for evidence of God's love. But, we, but I also said, but if you look elsewhere for other things, God will always be showing you in ways that are special to you and in ways that are unique to you. He knows you and he loves you and he wants you to know that he loves you. So he's going to be putting things in the world to show you that he loves you. I just believe that with all my heart. And so the, the young people that were there, some of them, and Jared's wife-to-be wrote in her journal, I believe it was daisies, am I right? Yes. And she wrote that down, and I wrote down, and I, and I said in my message, I said, 
I want to see the aurora borealis, the northern lights, and, and I'm going to take that as evidence of God's love for me. And I want to see a bear, a live bear, from a safe distance. I, <laughs> I said that. Did I not say that? That's what I said. I said, I want to see a live bear from a safe distance. A few days later, we're driving through this provincial park in Canada, which was amazing, and the traffic came to a stop. And Jared was driving the van, and Jared says, well, usually this happens when people see wildlife. And then I think I said, oh, maybe I get to see my bear. We got out of the van, we're standing there, and a bear walks out of the woods. I have my witness here today. We have photographs of this, don't we? A bear walks out of the woods, almost looks like he looks over at me. Like, here I am, Ken, you know. That, that, that might have been my imagination, but it looked at, you know, kind of like he was sniffing the air or she was like, and then I was like, oh my word, it's a bear. Everybody kind of laughed, oh, it's a bear. And, and I was like, it is a bear from a safe distance. You know why? Because God loves me. Are you listening to me? Yeah, because he loves me. And the bear crosses the road, and before he goes in the woods, it's like he looks back at me. He didn't really wave, but it just seemed like. <laughs> and Jared got pictures, did you not? Get pictures of this. And, and by the way, I want high definition, high quality. So dig back 10 years into your files and you can do that for me. And because um, I got those grainy Facebook, uh, you can see this on my Facebook. I- I'm telling you that you will find evidence of God's love in the most unusual places when you're looking for it. And we're going to see one today, a place you might not have thought to look for evidence that God loves you. Take your Bibles, if you have them with you, if there's one in your pew, it's uh, James, the epistle of James and chapter 5. James chapter 5, and today just the first six verses, we're going to see this. We're going to see that there is evidence of God's love for you when you are treated unjustly. There is evidence of God's love for you when people have treated you in an unfair way. And this happens to all of us. Well, let me set up this text. Before we read it, I'm going to read it in a moment, but let's set it up. Let's remember, like, who wrote this? Who did he write it to? James, the half-brother of Jesus, the blood brother of Jesus, wrote this epistle. James was a, a presiding elder in the church in Jerusalem. Now, what had happened is there was a persecution after that, that broke out. You can see this in Acts chapter 7 and in chapter 8, the first verse of chapter 8. A persecution breaks out after the stoning of Stephen, and, and, and the, the believers are scattered, but the apostles stay in Jerusalem. And it's to the scattered and persecuted kind of refugee believers this, this letter is written, right? And it's written by James, the, one of the presiding or the presiding elder or pastor in the church in Jerusalem. And James has written to the church, and he's trying to encourage them. And he's trying to challenge them to make sure their faith is real even when they're living really under difficult circumstances. This is the setting now, right? In chapter 5, we're we're breaking into an an area there where he's encouraging them, and he uses an unusual literary device. At first, it seems kind of hard to understand, but then you realize he's using an unusual literary device. He's using a literary device called apostrophe. It's often used in acting when you speak to someone who isn't present as if they were present. And the people that he's speaking to who aren't present, he's speaking to them as if they were present, are the wicked rich, the oppressors. So you see what's going to happen, you're going to see this in the text, is that the people that are scattered, the believers with a Jewish background from Jerusalem that are now scattered to other places are very weak 
and very vulnerable, and so wealthy, powerful people are abusing them. They're making them work, and they're not paying them. And the words come back to James, and this obviously breaks his heart. And now James, he speaks using this literary device, apostrophe. It's as if he's speaking to those wicked rich. And the people that are listening in, the main audience, are those who are being treated unjustly. Does it make sense? Now let's read the text and underst- having understood it that way. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Some strong words. Now, if you've ever been treated unjustly, and all of us have to some degree or another, and if you're sitting here today and you're really young and you're really inexperienced and you've never been treated unjustly, write this down. You're going to need it because nobody gets through this life without encountering injustice. Nobody makes it through. Nobody ever, I've read books like this, but I think they made them up. Nobody ever has a marriage that doesn't include a little bit of, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. That isn't right. And some of us, some of you, even in your youth or somewhere in your life have encountered a powerful injustice, a great wrong. So when that happens to you, and it's happened to me, this is what I know two things come to mind immediately. Hey, God, what about them? And hey, God, what about me? Is what happens when you're treated unjustly. You say, God, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to let them get away with that? Can they do this and not answer to you? Are you going to do anything about this, God? What about them? That's the question. What about them? And then the other question is, what about me? What about me? And when you ask those two questions, you notice that this text, well, that's how we're going to handle the text. We're going to describe it today. We're going to go through it once and just look at what about them. <laughs> what does God say about not the wealthy, but the wealthy who use their power and wealth to oppress others? Wealth isn't bad. It's just dangerous. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's just easy if we have wealth, and all of us do to some degree, it's easy for us to assume that because we have things that we're secure. I, I know a man who was a good man, and, and it was a physician, and he, was a, he, was a, he had a lucrative uh, career, and he was young, and he had a beautiful family, and it just had everything going in the right direction, everything. He could live anywhere in America he wanted to live, and so he decided he wanted to live in Colorado. He moved to Colorado, and I thought, that guy has it put together. He's a, he has an esteemed career. He has a lot of money. He has a beautiful family. My heart was so broken when I heard the word that 
late at night, one night on the way in from his mountain home in town to do his work, he did what you're not supposed to do. He swerved to avoid a deer and rolled his car in, and he died. And the thing you want to remember, when you have everything insured and you have a little room, you know, a little wiggle room because you have savings and, and you have done all the wise things and you had all your checkups at the right time, is that no matter how much money you have, you cannot secure yourself against the realities of life. And then what compounds that, of course, is if you have some authority or some position or some power and you use it to oppress somebody else, then you're in the category of the wicked rich. And he's saying you should mourn. I want you to notice five things, the what about them, five things. Number one, they feel secure now, but judgment is coming later. They feel secure now, but judgment is coming later. going to read verses one through three again. Come now, you rich, weep, howl for the miseries coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have, you have the fire of judgment in your future, even though you have luxury right now. And you laid up treasure in the last days. This doesn't mean good treasure. This means a treasure of judgment against you. And behold, uh, and, and, that, and verses 1 through 3, they feel secure now, but their judgment is coming. So James says they should mourn, their riches will soon be worthless. The riches will be evidence against them that a judgment of fire is coming on them. The first of five things to see about the wicked rich is they feel secure now, but there's judgment that's coming later. It, you, sometimes those of us who feel like we don't have much will say something like, I would rather be poor and happy than rich and miserable. And we kind of hope the rich people are all miserable. Another <laughs> guy wrote this. He said, Wouldn't, couldn't we work something out like being moderately wealthy and a little moody? <laughs> I think that's the way we feel. Hey, can I just be medium, God? <laughs> Have enough money to pay all my bills and go on some nice vacations? And, you know, not, not you know, slobbering ugly with wealth, but just real comfortable. Could we work that out? Well, the, the wicked rich, though, he says, everything's good now. And he doesn't recognize it's not always going to be good. There's a judgment to come. And the second thing is, they've ignored the pleas of the oppressed. But God, the, the Lord of the angel armies, has heard them. In the old, in the old uh, rendering, it's transliterated, Sabaoth, Lord Sabaoth. Not to be confused with Sabbath, different word altogether. Sabaoth means Lord of the host, Lord of the angel armies. Often, when people are oppressed, God comes to their aid and he uses this title, Lord Sabaoth, means I'm the commander of the armies of millions of powerful angels. You don't want to mess with me. That's a good name. They've ignored the pleas of the oppressed. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back are crying against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lord sabaoth the lord of hosts okay two things the wages that you that you defrauded them what you really should have paid you didn't he says those wages are evidence against you and now it gets really thick and i can hear them crying out this is one of those nuances in the text that you want to think about a little bit. 
two things. One is you don't want to treat people in such a way that they cry out to God, right? You don't want to treat people or mistreat people in such a way that they cry out to God. God hears their cries. And then secondly, when you're being mistreated and you cry out to God, he hears you. When oppressed people cry out to God, the Lord of the angel armies hears them. Second thing, they've ignored pleas, but God hears them. Third thing, they, they live in luxury and self-indulgence on earth. But a new heaven and a new earth is coming, and it'll be a time of absolute and eternal justice. Look at verse 5. You lived, and I think it's interesting, you lived on the earth, on this earth, in luxury and self-indulgence. It's almost as if there are people, can you imagine, who are acting as if there is no eternal state, no heaven, no eternity, just like they've got to build a little kingdom here and now. It's almost as if that there are people who are living on earth who say, who are living as if this is all there is. You know anybody like that? Have you ever been tempted to live like that? As if this is all there is? And so James is saying, they lived in luxury and self-indulgence on earth, but a new heaven and a new earth is coming, a time of eternal and absolute justice. And fourth thing, they've abused their power and advantage, and they've, and they've missed this, that God is more powerful. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he doesn't or can't resist you. Have you ever been oppressed by somebody more powerful or more wealthy or in a position of authority over you? then you know how it feels like, I, I can't, there's nothing I can do. I, I'm powerless. That's why you're being oppressed, because you don't have any power, you know, to push back. And, and if you've had any people that are involved in, in the court systems, you can talk to them. Uh, there are some lawyers in the house, and you could probably talk to them. I think they would tell you that you won't find justice in the courts. You won't. What will happen in the a court system is People will try to get you to get along. They'll try to get you to kind of work out a deal of some kind. They try to get you to agreement. Almost nobody ever goes away from court happy. Nobody, you ever watch the programs on TV? And then finally they get that conviction, and they say, nobody won this. Because in this world, there's never going to be that like bow of justice tied on anything. Justice, genuine and, and, and complete justice, is only going to happen when God it he's the ultimate judge no put down on the legal system or the penal system or any of that it's just that in our fallen world we'll never feel like we've had justice but the but the scriptures are going to say the scriptures are going to say in the next uh section we're going to get to hey believers be encouraged the judge is at the door and that's a good thing for believers the judge is at the door so the way we feel when we're oppressed when we are treated unjustly, when we're mistreated by somebody, the way we feel is, hey, God, why aren't you doing anything to them? Hey, God, why aren't you helping me? And James is saying the judge, the ultimate judge, is at the door. He's ready to act. And when he acts, it will seem like he acted immediately, though for now it won't seem that way. And, and this is what he's saying. So now the second question, what about me? <laughs> what about, okay, Basically, what, what is James saying that God is saying about the wicked uh, oppressor? He's saying he's going to have to answer to God someday. And that should be a comfort. That was the whole point of James writing to the people. 
Be comforted because the people that are oppressing you, oppressing you someday are going to answer to God, the Lord of the hosts. And God is listening to you. So that's an encouragement. Okay, then that you would, what about me? Do in the meantime, God. I want to I suggest three things that are obvious for, from, the, from the text. And, and this would be, will be an encouragement to you when you understand it. Three things. One of them is, uh, is value things that are invisible over things that are visible. V- second is value eternal things, eternity over time. And third is value people over things. Let's go over that. Let's go over that because it'll help you. Now, I, have a, I don't want to talk about it a lot, and you don't want to hear about it a lot. But this isn't theory that I'm talking about right now. It's personal experience. And, and having, uh, as a, in my childhood, having experienced injustice. In my adulthood, having experienced injustice. And in my family, having to endure injustice. These are things that have been a great comfort to me. And they're true from the Scriptures. And that is, there are things that are visible, and there are things that are invisible. And God values both things that are visible and things that are invisible to us. But things that he values highly are things that we can't see right now. Most are not the things we see, but they're things that are invisible to us. Does that make sense? Uh, and this is important to understand. It's a little bit like Jesus' story. Remember this story in Luke? about the rich man and Lazarus, and rich man had everything, and he ignored this poor man who was begging, and then the, there, there were things that the rich man didn't see, but then later on he did see them. When he was tormented, the rich man was an unbeliever, and he was tormented, and then when Lazarus was honored, there, the, we, we don't see the world the right way unless we factor in the things we can't see. This is a help to us when we're going through injustice. Oh, it looks really bad right now. It looks like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. But don't let appearances fool you because it ain't over yet and there's more going on than what you can see. This is a Christian must believe. Be encouraged. God sees, he hears, he weighs everything and he does not settle all of his wrongs in this life and he does not reward all that's good in this life. And this is a good thing because he will thoroughly and completely and eternally bring justice to the world someday. Second thing, we value invisible over the visible and we value eternity over time. God values both time and eternity, but he always wants us to think of eternity over time as in the temporary that we see right now. The the story is told, apocryphal, I'm sure, of the man who said, if I could just have the stock page for a year from now, then I would know. There's the brightest man in the room right there. Eddie got that, and you guys are still thinking about it. Yeah, so so Eddie moved to the front of the class. Uh, That's good. So, So you've got, if I could have the stock page for a year from now, then I would know what to invest in, and I could be very wealthy. And so by some strange mystery in this apocryphal legend, he gets the stock page for a year from now, but then the wind blows and it flips over on the back and his obituary is printed on the back. Kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock story, isn't it? This is the thing that we need to remember while we're looking at our stocks and while we're looking at our investments and while we're noodling about, you know, 
insurances and all the things that we put our security in, these are just the things that are, that are time, and they're not the things, there are things that we can invest in eternity. My, my dad uh, never had a, a lot of stuff, but he made a lot of investments. He made investments regularly, all the time. My dad was all about making investments all the time. And it, he would make them on, like, Sunday morning. He's a pastor, but he'd get in his car on Sunday morning, and he would drive 20 miles out of the way to pick up a family that nobody else would want in their church. He would take me along with him because there was a, a woman within 10 years of his age and then a bunch of her little nieces and nephews that would pile into the car. So every Sunday morning, along with everything else my dad was doing to get ready for church, he was driving out to get that family. That, that really wasn't desirable for other people. Why was he doing that? He was making investments every time that will never be taken away from him and rewards that God says he will have in heaven for loving people that other people don't love. If we could look into your treasure in heaven, what would be there? Would it be like judgment against you? Or would it be like rewards because of your selfless, sincere service? Do you see eternity over time? Or do you see time over eternity? How is it? What about you? Well, it'll help if you see the invisible over the visible, and if you see eternity over time, and if you see people are more important than things. And that's important. The first question that I get, you know, when I open the floor at camp and say to kids, what questions would you like to ask? Always has to do with the existence of evil. Kids will say, why does God allow bad things to happen? And he doesn't like make it, make it right. It's, a, it's another way of saying it just seems like the world isn't fair. You know, Christian pastor, can you explain it to me? Why do people get oppressed or hurt and it doesn't seem like God does anything about it? The answer has to have time in it. Are you with me? Are you with me? The answer has to have time in it. In other words, God isn't done yet. He isn't done. That's the Bible answer. God isn't done yet. He continually offers the promise of, of, of a benevolent eternity to those who believe in him, a, a, a just world, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and an ultimate universe that's absolutely just. And may, he promises them make everything right. And then he, the, the word, I think, is compensate. He compensates, right, throughout time in, in the quality of the reward and the quantity of the reward, the length of the reward. So if this is true... If what the Bible says is true, God, and he inhabits eternity, and this, this earthly experience we have is temporal and temporary, and it's going to spill out into eternity after a judgment, and those who have fled to Christ for mercy are going to be rewarded in a peaceful eternity, then it all makes sense. But if that's not true, really nothing makes sense. You have to have time and this we, we see, there was a guy, his name was Ken Ilganus. It was a, he wrote a, one of these travel narratives. I, I, I'm fascinated by, by travel narrative. Um, and he, 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 he's written a number of them, but one of them was uh, he had graduated from college and he had a lot of debt and he, he was accepted into grad school and he couldn't go to grad school. He couldn't imagine going to grad school and just incurring more debt. 
So he paid off his college debt, and he bought a van, and he lived in a van, and he kind of had to surreptitiously, secretly live in this van and move it around to places where he could get a shower or a meal. He lived in a van, and he graduated from graduate school without debt. And then he wrote a book about it. Probably made a lot of money on the book. I don't know. A good book. If you were to say that to Ken during that time when he was living in his van, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Living in a little cramped up van, hiding from the police all the time? He would have had a very quick answer. And it would have pointed to the future. Because he had something to look forward to. It's the short answer. The Christian of all people has something to look forward to. This you can never lose sight of. That, that which we have to look forward to. It's all about what we have to look forward to. This is what makes life worth living, is to have something ultimately to look forward to. When we get up in the morning and we see more wrinkles than yesterday, then it does our hearts good to know that one day there's going to be a new body, and it's going to be eternal, and it's never going to get old, and it's never going to hurt, and it's never going to have cancer, and it's never going to die. This is the Christian hope. This is why we can whistle. I'm in the store the other day, and I whistle. Maybe, remember, remember what I told you? I whistle because I'm musical, not because I'm happy. I am happy, but I whistle because I'm musical. But people, when they hear me whistling, always assume I'm happy, which is okay. And I'm whistling in the store yesterday, and I walked past the lady who goes, you sound really happy. And I wanted to stop and give her a little preaching right there, you know, but <laughs> that's lame. So I just smile. I said, yeah, I am. I wish I could tell you all about it. I'm happy. And I will still be happy when, when I, my heart is broken with things that happen in a fallen world, the kind of happiness, you know, the joy because I'm rooted in, I have eternal life, I am forgiven, I'm under the mercy, I'm, I'm, there's going to be a time when there's no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no, no, more, no more tears, no more injustice. The judge is at the door. I like that. And then you have, they say, there's this phrase that's, that's sometimes used, quorum Deo. You know what that means? Like living in the presence of God. Living with an awareness of God's presence. This includes living with an awareness of all that God said is true, like things that are eternal. This is, and you can tell when a person's values are like this because they, they value things that are invisible over things that are visible. They value things that are eternal over things that are temporal. And they value people over things. My daughter, Holly, when she was young, we were at the dinner table one night, and we lived in, in, up in northern Michigan, and we were at the dinner table, and I was telling her about how much I liked my car. I, I'd gotten this car that my brother-in-law, so it was a brother-in-law deal. My brother-in-law paid this car down until there were only a handful of payments left, and then he gave it to me with the payment book. So it was mine if I just made... It really a few, maybe a few payments, of maybe a year's worth of payments. So it was a good deal. It was a brother-in-law deal. And I liked that car a lot. And it was, at the time, it was the nicest car I'd ever had. And we were at the dinner table, and I, the kids were saying, you really like your car? I'm like, I do, but it's just rust. It's just junk. It's just iron, you know. But, I, yeah, I like it a lot. And uh, that night, Lois says to me, could you go to the store and get me some Dr. Pepper? because she's a health food fanatic, and so I said, so I'm like, oh, I was listening to Bach, and I didn't want to. Some of you sound like, like, that's not maybe, Jared, what do you think about that? 
Jared is a violinist, yeah. I was listening to Bach, Jared, on a stereo. And I didn't want to go anywhere. I'm like, wait a minute, Holly's learning to drive. I'm like, hey, Holly, you want to go to the store? <laughs> She's like, yes. I go, you can drive my car. So she comes down the steps. I'm like, I, my older son, Kyle, I'm like, hey, go with her, you know. So she leaves for the store, and I'm listening to music you know, quietly there. And 10 or 15 minutes later, I hear this unusual noise outside. And it's like, sound a lot like metal against metal kind of a crashing sound. I'm like, hmm, that's odd. <laughs> My son Chuck comes thunder down the stairs. He's like, dad, 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 Holly wrecked your car. Holly wrecked your car. Kind of cheerfully, Holly wrecked your car. <laughs> I was like, so I got up and I started out there. And I, did you ever have this happen? I heard this little voice almost. Was not, I did, but I didn't. You know, it's like the little voice goes, what you're about to say Holly is going to remember the rest of her life. So be careful what you say right now. I said, thank you, Lord. And then I went outside, and there was like, it looked like there was smoke swirling up from the front. She had ran my favorite car into our other car. <laughs> well, I was happy she didn't like crash into the neighbor's car, but she wrecked both of my cars at once. <laughs> I, was, I was frustrated, you know. So and then she was just slumped over the wheel, just weeping. And like, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My oldest son, Kyle, he's standing on the other side of the car, and he has this, like, laughter that he uses that just makes you want to choke him to death. <laughs> and that's what he was doing. He's like, <laughs> laughing. I'll look at him like, mm. Holly's like, I know you love your car, Dad. I'm so sorry. I know you love your car. I'm so sorry. I go, well... It's okay. It's not a problem. It's just a car. Okay, I lied, you know, but that's what I said. It's just a car. And then we kind of straightened the hood out. It had a broken grill. It still ran. And I thought, well, I'm just going to leave it like that. That way, every time I look over the hood of my car, this little thing like, people are more important than things. And that came to me real strongly a couple days after that when our friend Jane Whitty came over and she was standing in her front yard and she goes, oh pastor wrecked, you, looks like the pastor wrecked his car. She's talking to Holly and Holly goes, no I did. Jane says, what? You wrecked your dad's car? She goes, yeah. Jane says, well what did he say? Holly said, well, he said, people are more important than things. He said, it's okay. And then Jane says, yeah, I, I was joyriding in my dad's car when I was about your age, and I thought it would be cool to smoke a cigarette, so I went to light a cigarette, and I ran off the road, and I scraped up the side of my dad's car. And then when I got home, he saw it. He, he drugged me out car and he threw me on the ground. He's kicking me. There's a real big difference, isn't there? When you realize that people are more important than things. That was a couple years later, I called Holly down from I said, hey, I need to see something. Would you come down here with me for a minute? She's like, yep. I go, I want you to see something. And so she came down and she stood there. I put my arm around her and 
a flatbed truck came to pick up my truck. And they didn't even run. The tires were worth more than the car. <laughs> they pulled that thing up on the flatbed and drove away. And Holly and I stood there and watched that car that I loved so much go away. And I hug her real tight because, you know, people are more important than things, right? Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray. And when you get standing there, we're going to pray. Ask God to help us to remember when people have mistreated us, God is going to take care of us. And maybe he isn't going to do it right away, but he's going to do it well. And Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, the Bible, how it comforts us when whatever we face, we thank you and we love you, Lord. Amen.